The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Our Lord reveals to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, a vital truth here at this morning. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14 says this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made one as well as the other. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider, God has made one as well as the other. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, put it this way, Everything is necessary that He sends. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. Think about that this morning in light of what we've read already about the life of Joseph. Here's what God has sent for Joseph. Joseph was born into a family of generational sin. A family of favoritism. You remember, of course, that Joseph was favored by his father Jacob in such a gaudy way that he was actually dressed differently than the rest of his brothers. But was that not sin that Jacob learned from his own father? Remember when Isaac preferred Esau to Jacob? And did not Isaac see some of that generational sin from his own father? Remember Abraham and the whole Ishmael escapade. And so here, Joseph doesn't choose where he's born or when he's born or to whom he's born, and God has sent this for Joseph. The betrayal and abandonment. Joseph is betrayed at a hard time and in a hard era. He becomes a slave in Egypt. This too, God has sent. But think of what God has withheld. Joseph is in prison. Justice is delayed. No apparent relief is seen. This God has withheld. Let's think about your life. What has God sent? Or what has He been sending? So many things of our life are things that we have to admit are out of our control. We choose not our DNA. We choose not the family to which we're born. We choose not the century or continent on which we are born. We choose not our gifts. Think of things God has deemed necessary to withhold. Perhaps the health you once had. The ease or comfort you once enjoyed. The approval you desire. The control you wish God has withheld. The question is, do you see the necessity of what God has chosen to send and what God has chosen to withhold? The danger, of course, if we don't see God in what we find joyful and adverse, then we will respond in the wrong way. One common way we could respond that's wrong is anger. Especially if we've been mistreated, we may even lash out in vengeance. Joseph had many reasons to feel vengeful. But Romans 12 tells us, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. We're not used to that. We consider it a literary classic to read through the Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> Were you used to the idea of being responding in anger or vengeance to when we're mistreated? Not only may we respond in anger, but we could respond in despair. 
when it seems that God has withheld what we think we need and God has sent what we didn't want, we may feel self-pity or self-punishment. This morning, I want to encourage you through God's Word that God has sent what is necessary and He has withheld what is necessary, even if in this moment it's hard to fathom why. And when we can't fathom why, can I give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I think captures well how we should respond. Here's what he wrote. God is too good to be unkind, and He is too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace His hand, we must trust His heart. This morning, as we're in Genesis 40 through 41, I want to remind you that when you can't trust, when you can't trace God's hand, you can trust His heart. And in this morning's passage, we'll see Joseph's great reversal. And throughout the passage, I want you to know that this passage is written for you. (laughs) So that through it, you will find encouragement. And so that your faith will actively turn so that God fulfills His good purposes. Look with me in God's Word in Genesis 40. Our brother read the verses to bring us back up to speed with where we left off. So now we're in Genesis 40. If you have a bulletin today, the points are very simple. Number one, Joseph again, God's dream interpreter. So look in God's Word, Genesis chapter 40. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 39, so very early in the pew Bible this morning. Genesis 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. In the prison where Joseph was confined, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. There's so many things we can already observe here. Remember, Joseph is wrongly imprisoned because he was falsely accused. This would seem to be the moment of life that you've earned a pass to be left alone. (laughs) You now have the right to not be required to help anybody with anything after all the horrible things you've gone through. But notice how the Bible describes Joseph here. He is actually being appointed with responsibility, and he uses it, verse 4, to attend to those in his care. The Hebrew word for attend is actually a very strong word for serve. It's normally a word used of someone who's in a position of inferiority, serving someone who's superior to them in rank. Joseph, though, is actually superior in rank, and he's serving those who are actually put under his care. Notice, rather than wallowing in self-pity, he's engaging in service. Rather than telling everybody all the awful things he's endured, he's asking people how they are doing. It's important to notice here that Joseph is not bound by his circumstances, nor need we be. Our circumstances need not be who or what we are. Who or what we are must transcend our circumstances. Indeed, as awful as things may be in a moment, our character can always lead to a new set of circumstances. So let's notice in verse 5 as the text continues. And one night they both dreamed... The cupbearer and the baker and the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Now be amazed at how Joseph responds. 
Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, if you were here before, do you remember where dreams have gotten Joseph so far? (laughs) The fact that he wants to hear them again is incredible. The last time God gave Joseph two dreams, he ended up being abandoned by his brothers in a pit. They were going to kill him there. And then they decided instead to make some money off him. So they sold him into slavery at 17 years old. He has now been in slavery in Egypt for about 12 years. In all of that time, all he's had is the two dreams of revelation that God had previously given him. Now two other people each have a dream. Again, notice two dreams. And Joseph says, oh, These are from God. Tell me about them. In the 1800s, Pastor Dr. Marcus Dodd wrote this, Joseph's willingness to interpret the dreams of his fellow prisoners proves he still believed in his own. He reverenced as a man the dreams of his youth. Joseph says, I want to hear your dreams because they're from God when they're doubled this way and he still trusts what God had revealed to him. Though in this point in his life, he had no reason to have hope that they would be fulfilled. Look at verse 9 as we continue. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. Just explain what a cupbearer is in this time and day. If you're the chief cupbearer, you are the main person who drinks something before the king, or in this case, the pharaoh, would drink it. In other words, you're there as a taste tester, not just so that it tastes good, but so that it's not full of poison. It's an interesting job. (laughs) If you drink it and it's poisonous, you die. But if it's good, the king gets to enjoy it. Interestingly, the position became one of confidence. It became a little bit more like a secretary of state or someone part of a key cabinet role. So the chief cupbearer is someone who would be close friends and counsel to the Pharaoh. Let's continue. Here's his dream. In my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossom shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Now Joseph by divine power gives the interpretation. Verse 12, then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore it to your office. Lift up your head was a euphemism that's a little similar to our American idiom. You can hold your head up high. You'll again be restored to honor. You shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. I want to press a couple things of verse 14 and 15 that I pray will be helpful to you this morning. Notice that Joseph is not afraid or embarrassed to ask the cupbearer to recommend that he get out. That means that Joseph does not believe in fatalism, though he believes in God's sovereignty. It's vitally important that you know the difference. To believe that God ordains all things, that He sends what necessary and He was, and He withholds what is necessary does not mean that we do not have an active responsibility to take steps of faith. That is what faith is. Joseph then in verse 14 is not ashamed to exercise faith that God will work through His request, nor should we be. But verse 15 is also interesting. Joseph indicates 
that what has happened to him is actually unjust. Let me explain why this is so important. Many Americans have a, if you do good things, it'll go well for you, and if you do bad things, it'll go bad for you, ethic, deep in the back of their mind. And so when your life is not going well, you start to assume, what did I do wrong? And when your life is going well, you start to assume, what am I doing right? But don't you know it's more complex than that? What was Job doing wrong? What was Jesus doing wrong? Nothing. What was Solomon doing right? (laughs) Not very much. Not very much. See, Joseph understands something that you need to understand. Your circumstances do not necessarily tell you very much about your success. What's going on around you is not the same as God's sentence of judgment. Providence is not approval, nor is it disapproval. It's just providence. So Joseph rightly understands, I actually shouldn't be in here. You know, it's interesting. We, we don't think that way. We sing songs like, K Sarah, Sarah. <laughs> and haven't you heard this phrase? Hey, it is what it is. It is what it, Joseph doesn't say, it is what it is. He says, it's not what it should be. So now look in verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered him and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Quite a big difference than the cupbearer. And hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now you might think, what could we possibly learn from this? But don't forget, way back in Genesis 37 and 38, we learn that when a dream is coupled, it could be divine revelation. And if it's divine revelation, it is to be shared. Many people think that Joseph is just a spoiled brat when he tells his brothers that people are going to bow to him. Now again, it may have been very socially tone deaf, but he's simply sharing revelation. Now notice what he'll do here. He'll give revelation whether it's good news or bad news. If the revelation from God is you get a raise, or if the revelation from God is you lose your head, he gives them both. Do you know that not many people will do that? Second Timothy 4 says that there will come a day where there are people who have itching ears and they want to hear what scratches their itch meaning very few preachers will actually tell you the good news and the bad news. Did you know that Proverbs says this, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. So the line between a friend and an enemy is which one will tell me the truth? In Genesis 3, um, God tells them, do not eat of the tree or you will die. Do you know what Satan says to them? You should eat from the tree because you won't die. (laughs) The line between enemy and friend is who will tell truth. Joseph will share truth. You know what makes that doubly impressive is what does he have to show for it so far? Think in your own workplace, in your own family, do not tire of persevering in the truth even if for a long time there seems to be nothing to show for it. So far, Joseph has told the truth and it's gotten him prison. But he just keeps telling the truth because it's from God. And he lets God work it out. 
Let's look on verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the chief cupbearer, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. It's a vicious double entendre there. If you don't know what a double entendre is, it's when you use a word with two different meanings. It's like saying, uh, marriage is a fine institution, but I don't want to be institutionalized. You're using the term to mean two different things. Here are the phrases meaning two very different things. Verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. The word hang could mean decapitate. It's a fairly loose term. Verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So in your life, what is God sending? What is God withholding? What is necessary that he has sent? What is necessary that he has Withheld. Let me remind you of some things this morning to encourage you. Whatever God is sending and whatever God is withholding is necessary. Please remember that your circumstances do not determine your success. Your circumstances do not determine your success. You may spend life in notoriety or obscurity, neither of which determine your success. You may spend life on a large platform or a small platform. Neither of them are necessarily success. You may spend life with prestige or in squalor. Neither of them are necessarily success. Your circumstances do not determine your success. Number two, let me encourage you with this. Slow or no progress or even apparent regress does not mean God has abandoned you. Remember how Genesis 39 ended? Joseph is in prison and, as our brother read, the Lord was with him. Isn't that the moment where we feel like he's gone? But what do we learn from the 23rd Psalm? Yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. You see, if you feel like you're making slow progress or no progress or even regress, that doesn't mean God has abandoned you. Here Joseph is in prison, but God is still at work, which reminds me to tell you this, number three, God will keep His promises in His time. God will keep His promises in His time. So what should you do now? Obey what He's revealed. Okay, Deuteronomy 29.29. Can you write this one down? Deuteronomy 29.29. Here's what the Bible says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but them which are revealed are for us to obey. You want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? That's the secret things. Trust God with that. What are you supposed to do today? What He's revealed. See, all Joseph can do is deal with what's revealed. Here's what's revealed. Let me obey that. And then God will take care of tomorrow. You see, in God's program, suffering often precedes glory. Look in chapter 41. After two whole years. Joseph at 17 is sold into slavery. He's now been there for 13 years, the last three-ish of which have been in prison after interpreting the dreams. Pharaoh dreamed a dream. Praise God that he sent Pharaoh a dream too. That he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came a part of the Nile, and this dream's weird. <laughs> Seven cows, attractive and plump, 
And they fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Two is very important. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk, and behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. God is so good, he is sending it at the right time. Verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, and probably from prison, Joseph said, It's about time! Verse 10, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. He and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office. The baker was hanged. You know, we, we joke, it's about time, but remember, God's time is never our time. Joseph, I love in John 11, Lazarus has been dead four days. Jesus shows up at exactly the right moment. Here we are now in Genesis 41, verse 14. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, some wise preparation, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now here he is standing before the most powerful person in the world and he just got flattered by him. Now's the time to lean in and build that resume, right? But look in verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. The ESV really disappoints me here. It writes favorable answer. The NIV better writes the answer he desires. Neither of them are quite there because the Hebrew word is shalom. So all that Joseph is actually saying is God alone can give peace. God alone can give peace. So you've had a dream. Only God can answer it. And the only peace that's going to come is going to come from him. Let's pick up in verse 25 because Pharaoh just recounts the same dream we already read. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will rise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the lamb. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be very severe. And verse 32 is important if you've been tracking throughout Genesis. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Remember, how many dreams did God give Joseph? Two. How many dreams did Joseph interpret in prison? Two. How many dreams does Pharaoh have? Two. So it's this clear consistency. But 
There's a couple things that really struck out to me here that I find so encouraging. I love that Pharaoh said there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, one of the great things God does in our life is brings us to a point with the Bible that we cry out, who can explain this to me? Think of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah 53 and says, who can explain it to me? Friend, have you ever asked that question? I hope you have. I hope you've had a moment of, who can help me understand this? And Christian, I hope you've had a moment where someone asked you and you said, I can help you because God has revealed truth through His Word. Joseph got to fill that part. We all need to fill Pharaoh's part. But now notice how Joseph applies God's revelation. And let's pick up in verse 33 of chapter 41. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now the question is, that sounds like a really good plan. Who would be the right person qualified to carry it out? And I think we should read Joseph's silence as genuine humility. He does not think to commend himself. But maybe what Joseph hasn't yet seen, in the same way a child doesn't discern how quickly they're growing, is what God has been doing. In 1886, William Taylor wrote one of my favorite commentaries on Joseph, and here's what he wrote on this passage. He wrote, By those years of prison life, as well as temptation and privation, Joseph's character had been steadied into strength and ripened into maturity. They did for him what the 40 years in Midian did for Moses, what the 18 months in Arabia did for Paul. They threw him to rely on God alone. And I love how he finishes. The forgetfulness of men led him to the memory of God. Joseph now is ready to lead because he knows where the source of strength comes from, not himself. So now the great reversal. This is number three on your bulletin. Joseph's great reversal, and it's the title of today's sermon. Here's where so many of the good things begin. Verse 37, Pharaoh is pleased with the proposal. But notice verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? How did Pharaoh know to give credit to God? Because that's where Joseph gave it. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Despite all the things Joseph has endured, he's now seen as a man in whom God dwells and works. What could be said better? Verse 39, now we have the apex of some of this reversal. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you this, there is no one is discerning. Verse 40, you shall be over my house. All my people shall order themselves as you command. 
Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in a second chariot, and they called out before him, bowed the knee. Thus he set him before all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. What a reversal. But it also gives us a moment to correct Lord Acton's lie. Have you heard this lie? You've probably heard it. Lord Acton was a British parliamentarian, and he said this, Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Lord Acton meant well, but he is completely wrong. Did you know that power doesn't corrupt? Power reveals. You see, godly people can be entrusted with large amounts of responsibility, and it will simply reveal their character. Picture a bridge that's made out of wood, And it has many cars drive over it, but there are some slight fractures in the wood. When that 18-wheeler comes on it, the bridge will shatter. See, the extra weight will expose it for what it was. See, actually, the more things we're given, the more our character is revealed. Marriage reveals us. Parenting reveals us. Teaching reveals us. Leading reveals us. It doesn't corrupt us. How dare we act like we weren't already corrupt? It reveals us. Now, Jesus directly contradicted Lord Acton in Luke 16, verse 10, when he said this, one who is faithful in a little is faithful in much. One who is dishonest in little is dishonest much. Joseph is the second most powerful person in the world, and he's 30 years old. And he's already demonstrated integrity through many trials, and so can you. But sadly, we've started to believe that it's impossible to have responsibility and integrity. Don't believe that lie. Look at Joseph. Look at Daniel. Think of many biblical characters who had both Part of the reason we believe this lie is because in America, we no longer expect people to mature. In 2010, New York Times columnist Robin Morantz was writing a piece on traditional steps of maturity that aren't occurring anymore. The steps she had were completing school, leaving home, becoming financially independent, marrying and having children. In 1960, 77% of women and men had achieved all of those by the age of 30. In the year 2000, 33% of men had achieved any of those by the age of 30. I checked further. By the year 2015, one-third of people under 30 live with their parents still. By the year 2016, more adults lived with their parents than lived with a spouse. Thus, it means that in our country, the idea of maturing into responsibility is actually becoming less and less likely. But in the Bible, maturing into responsibility is something that happens early. Think of the fact that David was a teenager when he was anointed king. Daniel was a teenager when he was taken to Babylon. 
Mary was a teenager when she was chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus. I think in church history, Jonathan Edwards wrote his resolutions at 19. Charles Spurgeon was pastoring the largest church in the Western Hemisphere at 21. George Whitfield and John Wesley were ministering across the country in their college years. Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission at 21. John Calvin wrote his Institutes by 27. Here we read in Genesis 41 that Joseph at 30 years of age is the second most powerful person in the world and still has integrity. Let me lay out a quick vision for our young people at Emmanuel. At Emmanuel, we actually pray that God will raise young people to maturity and responsibility early. We want young people to be able to handle responsibility and have integrity. Look in Genesis 41. 46. Excuse me, 45. Pharaoh called Joseph's name, this long Egyptian name, and gave him marriage. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old. But now pick up down in verse 50 as we see God blessing Joseph with sons. Two sons were born to Joseph. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship Verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This week I was visiting someone in the hospital who's going through a very, very hard time, and I wrote out Genesis 41, 52 for them. I love that name, Ephraim, fruitful in the land of affliction. We see the big picture in God's program revealed in Joseph, and that is that suffering precedes glory. A.W. Tozer said it well when he wrote this, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has wounded him deeply. Here we have Joseph who is now prepared, but we also have an insight to God's grace. Joseph is in Egypt. He has no Hebrew prospects for a wife, and so he is given a marriage to an Egyptian. You might think, well, isn't intermarriage wrong. What is God doing here? But don't you know God's original promise to Abraham that through him he would bless all the nations? And don't you remember what he said to Abraham in Genesis 15? That he would prepare that nation in a foreign nation. God has already given a preview for the fact that he is a heart for all peoples and that through his work all can be brought to his son. Genesis 41, now pick up in verse 53. The seven years of plenty come to an end. The seven years of famine begin to come, as Joseph had said. Verse 55, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said, go to Joseph. Verse 56, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. But now verse 57 helps us know why all of this has happened. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. God had promised a special son who would be born through a special line. But how would that line be preserved? And how would that special people take shape? And the answer is through Joseph being fruitful in affliction. This is a time where there's no food and no water. And in the ancient Near East, the people find that they are finite, they're fearful, but they are famished. 
So they go to the second in command that God has raised up who is able to provide sustenance for them. And does that not point ahead to the very messianic line that God will preserve through Joseph? Is there not another second in command that is given the Father's ring and given the Father's authority? And does He not also come as the bread of life and the everlasting water? Joseph surely then shows us how God is not only preserving a line so that He can send His Messiah, but also shows us in preview what that very Messiah will be like. All the ends of the earth can look to Him to be saved. But just like Genesis 41 has a reversal but isn't yet the climax, so also our Son of God, Jesus, has come and He has offered His body and He has offered His blood and He has risen victoriously. And yet, we still await the final climax where heaven and earth are one and God calls us home. See, Jesus was the one who was truly wrongly condemned and abandoned. And yet, just like Joseph was sent to prison in God's big plan, so also it was the will of the Lord to crush His Son to save those who are lost. And just as Joseph was lifted out of prison, so the Lord was lifted out of that tomb because He would not be abandoned to decay. Just like Joseph was given a name at which every knee should bow, so also now God's Son has been given the name above all names in heaven and earth whereby alone we must be saved and at which every knee will bow. Joseph fed Egypt. Jesus feeds our souls. So this morning I ask you, Have you realized how famished your soul is and how satisfying Jesus is? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Friend, it starts there. This morning as I speak to Christians, what has God sent? What has God withheld? Have you learned to trust His heart even when you can't trace His hand? Do you see the big picture of suffering preceding Glory, chafe not at the bittersweet sovereignty of God. Instead, learn to say with Joseph, fruitful in affliction. This morning we see that your circumstances are not your success. Your progress or lack thereof does not mean God's abandonment. But we see suffering precedes glory so that we have a better understanding of the very Savior we serve and how the crown of thorns precedes the crown of glory, and the tomb precedes the resurrection. So let's close in prayer to our Lord. Father God, Lord, we thank You that You have sent Your Son Jesus to suffer unrighteously. He has been falsely accused and condemned, but He has chosen to give His life for us He died our death, and He has risen victoriously. Lord, help anyone here this morning who hasn't gone to the bread of life or to the everlasting well of water to find that Jesus is satisfying when everything else decays. Help them to realize the famished nature of their own soul, but help them to be able to sing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters, though, here this morning, some of whom I know their life well enough to know that they are currently experiencing suffering. 
And they might be asking God, why did you send this? And why do you withhold that? Help them to see, Lord, that you've done both for a good purpose. And help them to trust your heart even when they can't trace your hand. Lord, we know that suffering always precedes glory. We know there's no promise that this life will necessarily have all the glory that we long for. But Lord, we know that the glory that is promised that is to come makes the suffering in this life not worthy to compare. So God, we thank You, Lord, that Jesus Christ has taken all our shame and all our sin, and He has said it is finished. So thank You that through faith in Him, we know there is no condemnation, that we are more than conquerors, that even death will not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So give us the wisdom to discern what true success is and not fixate on our circumstances. And Lord, also give us an awareness to know that You are present even when we are grieved in our progress. In Christ we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.